And we thank you that you are always at work in the things that are around us, in ways that we see and in ways that we don't. And we pray even now as we turn to your scriptures, Lord. Open our eyes to see you for who you are. Through the power of your spirit, would your word bear great harvest and fruit in our lives. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to grab your Bibles. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We were reading from chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians last week, talking about really Paul's heart as he comes to this church. And it's interesting as I've been reflecting on this change of monarch and just surprised in some ways by how touched, not everybody, but some people have been um, by the king's service, it did strike me that there is not many examples of that sort of long-lasting, steady um, ser- service to, you know, in, in any space. And it is something to be thankful for and something to be admired. And we, uh, a couple of weeks ago, were looking at the life of Paul, particularly as he um, encouraged his son Timothy in the faith, as he knew that his time of departure, he says, openly was at hand. And he encourages Timothy to be a man of character above all other things, that that is what he is to strive for. And we talked, in fact, about this, uh, this notion of character within the kingdom of God. And then, of course, last week we looked at Paul's heart as he comes to the Corinthian church. This is Paul the apostle, Paul, a man of wisdom, Paul, a man with incredible giftings and and abilities, both in the natural, but also in ways that God used him to sing incredible uh, miracles and signs and wonders. And, and yet he says as he comes to the Corinthian church, I'm not coming as necessarily as the, the teaching apostle, though he came to teach. I'm not coming as someone who would impart to you giftings, although he encourages them in giftings to pursue and to seek after that. But he says, I'm coming as a father. And all that meant for them. And so he continues in this vein, and I, I know I'm trying to, to summarize an incredible book and portion of Scripture, but just to give you some highlights, he brings in that, that notion of coming as a father, he brings correction, and he brings discipline, he brings guidance, and, and that is the role and the heart and the outworking of fathers. And then eventually he, chapter 12, he talks about spiritual giftings. He brings great encouragement and exhortation, particularly in this area of spiritual gifts, saying you are a body and God has given each of us gifts in order for us to use in the functioning of the church. In fact, I'd love in a few weeks to come back and examine that particular passage. So he encourages them in that space. And then this builds up to chapter 13, probably a passage of scripture that is very well known to many of us. But I want to reflect upon what it is that Paul is trying to convey to the Corinthians, particularly in this light of this book that he's writing to bring correction, to bring edification, exhortation. And this really is, if you like, his high call to the Corinthian people. Let's just read the, the final verse of chapter 12. And As I said, he's he's talking about desiring earnestly the gifts of the Spirit. And yet he says, as he concludes chapter 12, I will show you a still more excellent way. See ESV translation, really, he's not just talking about something that's 
that's better. He's talking about something that is, some translations say, a, a more perfect way, a more complete, a higher goal. Not to say that these things are bad. He's encouraging them in that. But this is the pinnacle. If, if you'd like to summarize really more than anything else what Paul was trying to encourage and exhort and correct and guide the Corinthian church in, it is in this particular area. I will show you a more excellent, a perfect, a, a higher goal. This is where you're to set your aims. This is the target. This is the goal. This is what you're to strive for. Let's read it together. Chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. For love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Two more words, our focus and our emphasis this morning, beginning in chapter 14, pursue love. Pursue love. So seek after love, the high call of love. He brings them correction, he brings them guidance, he brings them encouragement, and he finishes with this call to the greatest path. Faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these, if you're grabbing onto one and one only, grab onto this reality and notion. The greatest of these is love. Therefore, pursue love. Let's just think about that this morning and unpack it a little. There's one commentator and writer who says this about 1 Corinthians 13. He says, the first and greatest task of the preacher when approaching 1 Corinthians 13 is to rescue this text from the white dresses, rented tuxedo, bouquets, and unity candles. Who else had visions of marriage, a marriage ceremony? I won't ask for a show of hands of who used this passage or a portion of this passage at their weddings. And certainly there is a wonderful reality that speaks to the love that is in a marriage that is reflected in this passage. But Paul is not trying to paint a romanticized poetic tapestry for a marriage ceremony. See, something very different. He's trying to give radical directions for a difficult and challenging mission. It's a mission, if you like, to traverse and climb over a narrow mountain pass, a higher call, 
but one that's difficult and challenging, one that requires great cost. Just think of the realities that he's portraying that this kind of love exhibits. It's patient, it's kind, it seeks not its own. On and on goes the list. And yet somehow there's something in this that is more wonderful than words can describe as we reach the summit and each journey across this difficult mountain past, this high call of love. Actually, this morning, my wife and I celebrate 18 years of marriage. 18 years. I don't know where she is. Happy anniversary. Had to get it in there somewhere. A few brownie points. So we're now an adult in terms of our married life. I know there's many in this room, I'm sure, that have been married even longer. But I can tell you, as a man who's been married 18 years, it is an incredibly glorious journey. And it's also, at times, an incredibly challenging one. Everyone who's married, say amen. Amen. There are challenges, and yet it is a fight and a journey that is worth pursuing with everything within you because there is no greater call and greater prize than the gift that 18 years of weathering storms, of standing together side by side through the challenges, growing together, learning from one another, Allowing what is in you that needs to be dealt with to be dealt with for the sake of that prize. It's a prize worth pursuing. Yes? Someone say amen. Yes, yes it is. It is indeed. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, not necessarily about marriage, although it applies in that context, but about this pursuit of love as the highest call and goal of our lives. You see, we think sometimes that love is the easy path. We'll just love everybody. The truth is love is the costly path. Selfishness is the easy path. There's nothing easier and ultimately less satisfying than just living for yourself. Love always costs. And no one knows that more than Christ. He's the one who came and gave up everything. Why? Because he so loved you. And he so loved me. So it's a higher path, but it's a harder path. But it is a call that goes to the heart of the king and his kingdom. I had a moment with the Lord, this is probably two or three weeks ago. I was up early and I headed to the gym as I often, often do in the morning. And I was on the treadmill, which even that in of itself, if you know me, that's probably the Lord right there. I avoid the treadmill at all costs. I think it's the height of folly to exhibit that much energy and never go anywhere. Have nothing to show for it. But I happened to be on the treadmill just warming up for the proper gym workout that would come afterwards. And I was just there, just in that place, mind switched off, and just in that space said, Lord, what do you have for me today? What's what's on your heart? What do you want to show and reveal to me? And just in my spirit, this is what I heard from him. He said this, the church needs a new wineskin. I thought, that's interesting. A new wineskin, all right. What, what, what is this new wineskin? And instantly I heard this and wrestled through this with me. I don't think this is the only thing, but this is what the Lord was putting upon my heart for us. The church needs a new wineskin, and the new wineskin is family. Hmm, think that one through. The new wineskin is family. And as, as I felt that in my spirit, 
This is what I knew instantly that the Lord was saying. You see, he came not to establish and develop an institution. Religious rituals and requirements. He came to establish and invite people into a family. Into a radical relationship. A people marked by love for God, but a love for one another. And to be honest, as I was there in that moment with the Lord, just on the treadmill, just hard enough in and of itself, and I'd love to say excitement birthed within my heart. But you know what? Honestly, I heard that and my heart kind of sunk. For this reason, I thought, Lord, that's great, that's wonderful, but that is a higher and a harder path. There's an inward groan. Give me a principle. Give me a practice. Give me a mountain to climb but just not people to love. Because who knows that relationships and families tend to be messy. They tend to be costly. There tends to be issues that press all of your buttons that you need intentionally to work through. But that's God's good intention and plan. I was reminded also of a passage. It's one of my favorites in John 13. You can turn there if you like, 34, or I'll read it to you. But this is... A moment as, as Jesus, and John loves to portray most of his epistle, a third of his epistle is one 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. His mission is to, to not give a, a complete, accurate picture of everything Jesus did, but really to show and proclaim and demonstrate who Jesus was, this insight into the heart of Jesus. It's a wonderful little book. And there's this moment where Jesus is sitting around with his disciples remembering that he's got this, this bunch of misfits in many ways. There's fishermen. I mean, these are, are manly men. They're used to working with their hands. There's zealots in the group ready to attack at his command, trained for battle. There's tax collectors. There's a couple of guys in there called the Sons of Thunder. Now, at one particular point when a group of people didn't believe, they said, well, Jesus, would you let us call down fire upon them? They're not believing. Come on, let's just smite them to the ground. Not just a disease, let's wipe them off the, the face of the planet. I mean, these, these were guys who were a little rough around the edges. And so he sits them down. And I, I'd love to have been there in the midst of this scene. It's one of those moments. And he says this, a new commandment I give unto you. This is to his disciples, his followers. I imagine then at this point there, it's a new commandment. Listen up. Jesus has something important to say for us, a new commandment, a new instruction. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. I mean, just imagine, put yourself there. What do you think their response was? Was it enthusiastic excitement? Or do you think perhaps it was an inward groan? Are you serious? Have you seen this guy? He's a fisherman. He smells. Have you seen that? I mean, like, Seriously? To love one another. I mean, love the world, fair enough. Love God, certainly. But love one another. And he continues, a new commandment. This is, this is important. This is foundational. This is central. That you love one another, even as I have loved you. Again, he says it, that you love one another. And he doesn't even leave it there. Grab a hold of this. He says, because by this, all men... The translation says, all the world will know that you are my disciples by the love 
that you have for one another. What a radical thought. What is it to mark us to such a degree that our city, that the nation, that the people around us who come into contact, is it our religious fervor? Is it our intellectualism and our knowledge? All those things can be wonderful. But Jesus says this is the one thing, the one thing on a list of one, which should be a surefire test of whether you are indeed my disciples. And it is the love that you have for one another. It's the love that we have for each other. You see, we we have, don't we, as we read through scriptures, there's this incredible call, there's a commission to proclaim the gospel. That is the mission. But I would suggest to us, there is this wineskin, there is this carrier that was always the Lord's intention, which is the great commandment, that we were to carry this commission in a community of love, and not just a love for him, but a love for one another. It doesn't say go into the world and invite them into a religious system. He says, go into all the world and invite them into radical relationship with God, but a community of people who love God. And I think sometimes we so often forget that second part. The mission is just to preach the gospel. But we're called to make disciples. And disciples are only ever made in the midst of community and a people who are happy to love one another. You see, Jesus left his blueprint for his church that's so vast, so marvelous, and so innovative. This living, breathing, expanding family that would permeate and transform the whole world. The problem is, isn't it, that as time went on, and certainly as we walk this out, so often we lose the vision. We can't wrap our minds around this magnificent plan. And rather than a community of loving, passionate followers of Christ, demonstrated to, dedicated to demonstrating the love and power of Him, we switch to what we can do. We build buildings. We run organizations. We develop entertainment centers to draw crowds. Perhaps we... We become more concerned about whether people belong to our denomination, whether people pray the right prayers, jump through the right hoops, they sing the right songs. We make our mission so many other things other than what God has called us to do. I'd suggest to us it's profoundly simple, but at the same time profoundly challenging. This is the mission. Preach the gospel. And this is how you do it. You love God and you love one another. So let me ask you this. How well are we doing it? If that is the measure, if that's what we're called to do, how well are we doing it? I had an interesting conversation this week with a, there's a, a pastor's gathering, a bunch of people who get together we were meeting up the north side this particular week, and there was a new guy to town. He's, I think, been in Canberra for six months, and he's moved. I think he grew up originally in Canberra, hasn't been around town for 30-plus years. He's got three uh, teenage kids in um, upper senior school, 
He said, we've just, just moved back to Canberra, we're kind of settling in. And I said, oh, you know, how's, how's it going? How are you finding things? And he said, it's really funny. It's been a strange journey, particularly for the kids coming back to Canberra. And he said, I, I've heard this from, I think there was three kids. He said, in each instance, he said, you know what they found as they've gone and they're in the public schooling system? He said, the most loving people that they've come across is the LGBTQ communities that are in their school. Full of love, embraced them. He said, do you know what the, the hardest communities they've found to engage in relationship? You know, want to have a guess? It's the Christians. The Christian groups. They said, we've, we've tried some different churches. We've tried some different groups. And the, and the groups they've found the, le- the, less, the least welcoming and inviting has been the Christian groups. What a sad reflection upon our city. Just one person's impression. I did say, we haven't tried our church. Come here, because we have it all together here, obviously. And (laughs) we do everything right. But it's a challenge for us, isn't it, to be a little self-reflective. And wouldn't that be our desire and a goal to aim for? If someone moved into our city or in our neighbourhood or in our spheres of influence, that their testimony would be, you know, you know who the most loving people were that I came across? It was the Christians. I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with what they have to say, but I tell you what, they were just brimming and overflowing with this otherworldly, radical love. So let me give us just these two really quick points, and then we're going to do something around communion this morning. This is really what I'm trying to encourage us in from the scriptures and from the reality of what we see around us. Number one, love is essential. Love is essential. This is not the optional extra. Paul is not saying to the Corinthian church, look, now there's three or four good options here. There really is. You could go this path or you could go this path or you could take the middle option, split the difference and head down this particular journey. Paul is saying crystal clear to the Corinthian church, this is the goal. This is the one thing that you need to strive for. The greatest of these is love, and therefore pursue that. The same way Jesus sitting around with his disciples. He's not saying it's the optional extra. Hey, this would be advisable. Like it would be better if you guys could just learn to get along Like, stop this whole thing of who's sitting on the right and left and who's going to be greater. We could definitely deal with the smiting people with fire. That would help. it's, It's not an optional extra. He's saying this is essential. If we're to carry this gospel, then this has got to be the means to do it. And everybody's going to know by this one simple litmus test. It's by the way that you love one another. See, it is interesting, isn't it, how the last few years have kind of changed the way we do community. I was talking to another friend this week just at the netball game. He's like, it's amazing. I was just up in Sydney, and he grew up in Sydney. He said, I used to walk down the, the CBD of Sydney, and it was packed. He said, I was there this past week, and it was the middle of the day. I was walking down the Sydney CBD, and there was about six people around. Like, there's just no one around. He said, there's coffee shops closing down everywhere, and the whole COVID working from home thing has really changed the dynamic, in his opinion, of inner city Sydney. And, and there's these whole new terms, isn't there, of online community, where we can just connect online. 
Now, I'm thankful for online connections. I am. And if you're online this morning, bless you. We love having you a part of our online family. That's wonderful. But it's never a replacement for authentic community. There is no substitute for people gathered together in a room. So I'm not anti the online, but I'm saying we need more than that. Real community will never be found in the absence of presence. So it it is important. And here is the lead-in then to the second point. There's only two. That love and community, it is intentional. It is. It's intentionally cultivated. It doesn't just happen. See, most of us would say, well, you know what? I would love to have... A marriage that after 18 years I could stand up and say, you know what, it's so much better and sweeter and deeper and fantastic than when we first met. I'd love to have a, a church that said, well, this, this is our goal. We live that out. I'd love to be a people, as Jesus said to his disciples, who said, yeah, well, if everyone looked at us, that's, that's the defining characteristic. That's say these guys are marked by this radical love for one another. Well, I would say that none of those things just happen. They all take and require intentional effort. They take sacrifice. And if there's one phrase that I've heard repeatedly, and I don't mind hearing it again and again from different people in the last couple of years, not just in church spaces, in every space, is I feel so disconnected. I feel so disconnected. I feel so isolated. I feel so alone. Why aren't people phoning me? Why aren't people calling me? And all of us could do a better job, we would admit, phoning and calling people. But my question to myself and to others is how intentional am I being in remaining in connection, in developing, in seeking paths to walk and ways to walk upon this self-sacrificing, radical way of love. This is, this is not a question here about, well, what's the church going to do? What, what are pastors going to do? This, this is the question I want to ask each and every one of us. It's simply this. What am I going to do? What, what is it that I can do to hear this high call of love? What's it going to take to become that people? that Jesus would have us be, the new wineskin is family, to be a church that others would walk into and they'd say, you know what? There's one reality here above everything else. There's just this incredible love in the room. To be a person in my relationships, whether it's with my wife or my friends or others around me, that people would say, you know what? There's something about him that always strikes me. It's the way that he loves. It's the way that he loves. A people marked by love. It's not an easy call. It's not a comfortable call. In fact, it's at times a gloriously messy, awkward, but wonderful and necessary call, all wrapped in to one. That we would be a people who truly know what it is 
to love one another. So I want to do two things this morning. I want to just pray for us in that regard. And then we're going to join around the Lord's table. And I uh, always love Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church because there's, there's this kind of sense as, as they gather around the Lord's table of this raw messiness and he brings that back into order a little bit. But there's this celebration of, I, I think at, at times when it comes to the the cup, the communion, we, we break bread and we drink wine. It's a little too sanitized. It's a little too clean cut. And I, I don't mind that to a certain degree, but I want to invite us to, just this morning, another way to do communion, gathering with one another and doing life and loving and encouraging and praying for one another, confessing our faults and sins and, and sharing together in that way. So let me pray for us. And then I'll lead us in that space. Don't freak out. It's going to be all right. Take a deep breath. So, Father, we just thank you for these encouragements that we've read from your scriptures. Thank you for this this high call of love. And I pray that we would heed the words of the Apostle Paul this morning, not just to the Corinthian church, but to us, that there is a greater way. There is a higher way. There is a need to rise above. That the greatest of these things is love. And that we are to be a people who pursue love. Lord, we thank you for this notion and this picture of a God who came not to institute a new religion, but to invite us into relationship. That the carrier for the Great Commission was always a people who would know what it's like to radically love one another. And I pray that this morning there would be a renewed commitment to embrace that, whatever that looks like for us. Specifically, Lord, that where there is stuff, where there's baggage, where there's unforgiveness, where there there are hurts, maybe from people here, maybe from other Christians, maybe from any other place, Lord, I pray even now that there'd be a capacity to forgive and to forget, to release people from the debts that we believe they owe to us, that there'd be a renewed commitment to press through the mess and the baggage with this desire to become a people who are radically marked, not just by our love for you, but a commitment to really love one another. And Lord, I pray that for our church in particular. Would we be a house of love? Even as we're praying this morning, Lord, I thank you for the the number of people who just spontaneously prayed about us becoming a family in an even greater sense, a love and an honor and a respect. And as for me, and I pray for each and every one of us here, there'd be a commitment to do our part, to become that kind of family that you'd have us be. Amen.